0: Amen. You may be seated. So I invite you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word and turning with me to our passage this morning, which we find in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And several years ago, we began this, this schedule in January where we took the first Sunday of the new year, the first Sunday of January, and we set aside for our covenant renewal service, and so we had that service last week, and then we take a couple Sundays after that to go through a series that we've titled, What Does God Say About? And we use that to look at a topic, usually one that's of hopefully some interest, a hot button issue, and over the years we've looked at what does God say about abortion, what does he say about homosexuality, what does he say about use of alcohol, of tithing, Now those two things go together, i said kind of quickly, but use of alcohol, dot, 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 tithing. What's he say about politics? And the idea is for us to have a good understanding of what does God say about these things. The world has a lot to say about it. When you think of those issues, the world is telling us a lot about that. What's God say about this? What's what's his word say to us about that? So this morning we continue in that series and we're going to look at What does God say about worship? Now, on the surface, worship may not seem to be as controversial as, say, abortion or homosexuality. However, it doesn't take you long in talking with other Christians to realize that we can have very strong opinions about worship. Do we prefer traditional worship or contemporary worship? And when we say we prefer traditional, what kind of traditional worship? High church sort of worship like the Episcopal's? Or something like we do here, a little less high church. If we say we like contemporary worship, what kind of contemporary worship do we like? Just a piano and a guitar like Shim Creek and Mount Pleasant does? Or do we want the full blown band? 20, 20 band members up there and, and a sound guard around the drum and there's lights and there's lasers and there's fog and the pastors coming in from the ceiling on. On wires, and, and there's flames, and it's like being at a Broadway production. Would you rather church use an organ or a piano? Do they sing old hymns? Do they sing new hymns? Do they sing no hymns at all? Do they sing the same seven words a hundred times over? What kind of worship do they have? And all those questions are what people use as criteria for where they choose to go to Church. As with most everything else in our society, there's been studies done on this, and studies have shown that in some segments, style of worship is more important than quality of sermon. So what dictates when somebody goes to church is whether they have a piano or organ, or flames, and drums, and hoops, and what have you. It's interesting to think, and many of us here can remember, not so long ago, most churches have similar worship. If you go to ARP, go to Methodist, go to Baptist, we all have similar worship. Piano or an organ, there's a choir, hymnal. If you went to the ARP, you had some psalms. But time has changed. When was the last time we gave serious thought to what does God say about worship? I'm sure we have our opinions We have our preferences. You are probably here this morning because you have a preference of style of worship. But God calls us to worship. God has created worship. So it would seem logical that he would have a say in how we worship him. So, what does God say about worship? Have we allow God and his word to shape our view of worship? Or has the world shaped it? Are just our opinions, our desires, our wants shaped our view of worship? What does God say about the worship of him? And that's what we will do our best by his spirit to answer this morning. So let me pray for us and we will come together before his word. But join me now as we, as we pray. Father, we come to an, an issue, a topic, I should say, that for some of us may be as highly opinionated as some of these other things we've mentioned this morning. We have an opinion on worship. I pray that our opinion is based upon your word. So I pray this morning that you would help us to hear your word, that through your spirit you would open our minds and our ears and our hearts to your word, and to the understanding of it, and so that we would be uh, more convicted and fruitful in our worship of you. Help us, O Lord, not to be worshiper of man and man, men's ideas. May we be worshippers of you, as you've called us to be. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 2, we'll begin at verse 42, and we'll kind of make our way through the passage. We'll kind of skip around for a moment, but... You will join me now in standing for the reading of God's word. Acts 2, beginning of verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And going down to the last part of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Some of, you, some of you may remember that in the mid-1980s, Neil Postman published a book, a best-selling book, titled Amusing Ourselves to Death. In his book, he explains, in part, how much entertainment has influenced how we think and how we interact with things such as news, ideas, and philosophy. And his main idea is summarized in the phrase form excludes the content. That is, a particular medium can only sustain a particular level of ideas. So when we look at entertainment, we find that entertainment in of itself can only inform so much. Entertainment is intrinsically not meant to be informative, such as the news. Our philosophy of other ideas is intrinsically meant to be entertaining. Something that we can use to, to deaden our minds or take our minds off of something. Yet this medium of entertainment that is limited on information has begun to be used to shape information and how we take in information. Hence, we are amusing ourselves to death. Because entertainments is slowly eroding how we think and what we think. It is taking away our ability to to think and is trying to tell us how to think. Even though it can only inform so much, intrinsically, entertainment can only contain so much information, it is trying to be not only the main source of information for us, but it's trying to tell us how we think. So we are amusing ourselves to death. Now Postman put forth this idea back in the mid-1980s. That's what, 40 years ago, coming 40 years ago now. And Think about what entertainment looked looked like back in 1983, 84, 85. If you had cable TV, if you had it, you had 30 to 40 channels. Pretty much everybody still got the daily newspaper and would consume it, to digest all the information in it. We had never heard of the word internet. Some of us may have had computers in our house that we used to play games and print up those big printers with the things on the side you had to tear off. Right? There was no, not everybody had a laptop or a smartphone. So if we're looking around at ourselves some 40 years ago and said, we are amusing ourselves to death, just think where we are now in the 21st century. We are surrounded by screens. We're surrounded by entertainment. Even when you go and pump gas, there's a little screen there that's meant to entertain you for the five minutes you spend 160 bucks to fill up your vehicle. There's a lot that can be explored with that. I want us to direct our attention this morning to how much entertainment has influenced our view and practice of worship. I'm confident in saying that for many people, Sundays have become less about worship and more about entertainment. Sundays isn't about going to worship the Lord, it's about being entertained in the name of the Lord. When you look around at churches that are popular, they all tend to share the same elements. It's a lot of production. It's that big band and they have loud, energetic music and, 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 and they're trying to get you all in the feels, get your emotion, right? There's light shows and laser shows and the more popular ones have fog machines, And you have a pastor up there who so badly wants to be hip. And I'm telling you, no grown man should ever be wearing skinny jeans to preach in front of people. But that's what they do. And they preach a message that is meant to be satisfying to everyone. It's not so much a sermon as it is a Jesus-y kind of pep talk. And the end goal, the end product is entertainment. The goal isn't worship. The goal is to entertain as many as possible popular view is that church is meant to be more entertaining than worship. And they're not going to say it's such They label as worship. They're going to tell you it's worship. But the end result, the product tells us everything about it, doesn't it? That in modern day America, church is becoming more entertainment than it is church. And when I say entertainment and entertain, I mean the idea of philosophy of what can I take from this what does this do for me? How can I be really fully satisfied by this product? And that has become the prevailing theme for churches and how we evaluate churches. We look at a church and we think, what can this do for me? How, what can I take from this? Me, myself, and I, how can I take more from this? So churches have become more about us, about ourselves and what I like and what I want, and it has become less about God. Church has become more me-centered and me-focused. And that runs very counter to John the Baptist, who says to himself, I must decrease so Jesus may increase. And the modern-day church says, I must increase so Jesus may decrease so I may be entertained. Entertainment runs counter to worship. Because worship is about what can I give? What what do I do, or what do I find worthy that I want to give more worth to? Worship isn't about what I can take. Worship is about what can I give? So it is inherent then, God-centered, because worship is about what we give to God. It isn't about what I, it isn't about what gets me all in my feelings and emotions, it's that we find God more worthy than anything else, so we come to praise and to revere and to celebrate Him. Worship is about God. It's about what we come to bring to God. So as we read through the Old Testament and we see all these regulations about how to build the tabernacle and the temple and how to worship. at the essence of that is defining that worship is God-centered, not man-centered. All the other pagan religions around them had that man-centeredness to it. And so God has given these regulations to help his people understand that worship is not about them. Worship is about him. Not about me but about God. And so when we understand worship in that sense, then we can see how many churches nowadays have, have, have replaced worship with entertainment. And it can be easy then for us to sit here and think that we're doing it better, right? Because we're not like them, right? We're the frozen chosen, we don't, we don't get excited in worship. We have, our, we have our hymnals and we have our psalters and we have an organ and we have a, we have a piano and we have robes and there's no fancy lights. There's no fancy screens. We're, we're pretty simple. We're pretty liturgical. We're in that comfortable middle ground between high church and low church. So it may be easy for us to look around and go, you're getting it wrong and we're getting an A plus here in what we're doing. But before we get too high and mighty as the frozen chosen ARPs, I want you to think through this with me. How do you you evaluate a worship service? When we end here in a little bit, and you get in your car to go home or go out to eat, and you start talking about worship service, how do you evaluate what just happened? Do you ask questions, or do you say things like, well, i really enjoyed that hymn. That's one of my favorite hymns. That really helped me get to a worshipful mood. I really, really enjoy hearing Laura on on the piano this morning. It kind of brought me to that that place. And I really like what the pastor said about this. I didn't really like what he said about that. (laughs) Wish he would have said that a little bit differently. Maybe not at all. Do we find... That we're thinking about worship in terms of what I get from it. When we apply criteria to what happens this morning, are we talking about what did I take from this? Because that's the ethos of entertainment, isn't it? Or do we think about how to serve helped to facilitate you coming before God, to give him all the glory honored as do him? Do we look at say, the church engaged, the church enabled me to engage in Psalm 969 to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness? Do we evaluate what takes place here every Lord's Day as worship or as entertainment? Because those are two vastly different things. And so to help with this, we, we, we look at our passage and we we see how the early church worshipped. Now in the chronology of what's taking place, Jesus has been crucified, he has been resurrected, Pentecost has taken place, he has ascended, and the early church is in its infant stages. But Luke tells us even in those early stages, even in those infant stages, there was a pattern of worship. And the pattern was there was preaching, there was fellowship, there was sacraments, and there was prayer. So even in the early church, there was a liturgy, preaching, fellowship, sacraments, and prayer. The first thing Luke tells us is that the early church was devoted to preaching. He says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Teaching is another phrase for for preaching. So so Luke tells us that every Lord's Day, the Christians would gather together as church, and they would hear the apostles preach. And they didn't have churches like this. They would normally meet uh, in, in somebody's house. All the people would be standing because there's not enough furniture for everybody to sit down. And they would listen to one of the apostles preach—Peter, John, Matthew, James, Thomas. They would listen to them. One of them read a passage of scripture, and then they would preach generally for about an hour or so. And it's easy for us, some two thousand years on, to look back and go, "That's a pretty idyllic scene, isn't it?" I mean, what Christian wouldn't want to sit under the preaching of the disciples? Uh, of the very men who, who walked with Jesus, who, who, who ministered with Jesus. You know they had to have had great stories. John tells us that, he did, that all the Gospels could not record everything Jesus did. So we would get that insider information from them. And they would tell us, man, let me, let me tell you what it was like to be there when he, when he raised Lazarus from the dead or when he fed the 5,000. Let me tell you what it was like to see him transfigured on the mountain. We, we would love to be under that. And, and so we, I think we romanticize it and we think, man, they must have been great preachers. To, to, to sit under the apostles, man, they, they must have been wonderful preachers. They must have been so engaging. I would have loved that. Would have much rather said under him than some, you know, under the apostles and some of these other people I have to listen to nowadays. If you would, let me throw a little wrench in that idyllic, romantic view we may have. There's a few things to think about. Most of the disciples weren't trained as speakers, they were fishermen. They could fish all day and all night. They could tell you all about nets and boats and currents and and this and that and so on and so forth, they weren't trained public speakers. Now they sat under Jesus, who's the best preacher of all time, but just because they sat under him doesn't mean necessarily that they were the same caliber. It may be that their preaching wasn't always that engaging. Forbid to say it, they might have been boring. We think of the story from Acts 20. In the first day of the week, which was the Lord's Day, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. So the Apostle Paul's there, he's talking with them. He's intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and departed. Then they took the youth away alive. So be thankful you've never been bored to death by a sermon like this Eutychus was by Paul. But there's something to be said about this, isn't it? This is the great apostle Paul. This, this is Paul. And and, and and obviously, Paul didn't know when to end the sermon, did he? Because it's getting late. It's close to midnight. And I like how Luke puts it, Paul talked still longer. That's a very a- a- apostolic, nice way of saying he wouldn't shut up. He's a preacher didn't know when to end his sermon. This young man, Eutychus, had come to hear Paul preach. Had gotten himself all comfortable. And Paul preached him to boredom. Preach him to sleep. He falls three stories and he dies. Doesn't sound the most engaging sermon, does it? And Paul himself tells us that he wasn't that good of a public speaker. He he had the best material because he was preaching from the Bible. But he tells us his delivery wasn't always the most entertaining or engaging. He said, I came to you stammering and, stammering and, 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 and stuttering. He wasn't the best preacher. But because Paul wasn't the most entertaining entertaining or engaging speaker, did, did God not use him? The greatest missionary church has ever known? Paul's preaching was God-focused. So God honored that. The apostles, preaching in our passage, preaching here in our passage, We're preaching God-focused sermons. They may not have been the most engaging or entertaining. Yet what does Luke tell us at the end of it? And thousands were being saved daily. Not because they were being entertained to Jesus. Because God's word was being preached to them. That's what God uses to feed his church. It's God-focused sermons. In our modern day, we tend to equate good preaching with entertainment. As long as we're entertained, as long as we are engaged, it's a good sermon. But we find in Scripture, a good sermon is meant to point to God and to exalt Him. It's meant to take God's Word, to read it, and explain it in such a way that God is glorified, that there's conviction of sin, that there's a call to holiness, That's a good sermon. It's not meant to be a pep talk. It's not to be a warm, fuzzy dialogue. It's meant to glorify God. And yet I think if we're honest, we can find that we can tend to evaluate preachers based on entertainments. It's a little too monotone for me. A little too nasally. Too soft-spoken. He doesn't really grab my attention. And what's that evaluation based upon? Am I being entertained? Did the preacher entertain me? Reminds me of the scene in the movie Gladiator. Maximus has been captured, the main character, and he is sent into the Colosseum uh, to fight. And he slays all the enemies. And he's in the Colosseum, and it's crowded with people. He does his job. He does his job well, and he just gets this kind of warm or lukewarm tepid applause. And covered in blood, after killing numerous men, he turns around and he yells out, are you not entertained? I've done what you have asked of me. I have done it well. Are you not entertained? Sometimes, preachers can feel the same way. We come to do our job and to do it well, and we're told later on, you just did not entertain me enough. Now we do have the responsibility to be as engaging as our personality allows. There are some who are more charismatic, and those are things we have to work on. But when was the last time we evaluated by saying talking about the meat of the sermon? Was it biblical? Did it point me to God? Did it convict me of sin? Did the preacher call me to look to Christ in faith and fall after him? Was the sermon more God-focused than entertainment? One of my favorite stories from history is about Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards was known to be a boring preacher because he tried to be a boring preacher. He wrote out his sermons full manuscript. And he would just sit up in the pulpit and he would just read them in the most monotone way possible because he was afraid he didn't want his personality to interfere with the message. So Sunday after Sunday, he would come into the pulpit, just read from his manuscript in the most nasal, monotone way. And in his diary, he recounts how on many Sundays, as he began to preach, people would lay down on the pews and fall asleep. Now, think about this. I want you to think about what that's like. I'm going, use, I'm going to use Matt as an example because I know Matt would never do this. I hope Matt would never do this. Let's say at the beginning of a sermon, you see Matt take his jacket off and he balls it up and he kind of nudges Irwin to move down a little bit. And Irwin gives him a nasty look, as he should, when he moves down and Matt stretches out on the pew. Puts his head on the pillow and begins to snore gently throughout the sermon. That's what Edwards, don't do it now Matt, you're moving, you're making me nervous, don't do it now. Edwards had to do that Sunday after Sunday. Deal with that Sunday after Sunday. His people weren't, they weren't proper enough to take the good proper Presbyterian church nap, right? We all know that We use cross your arms. Close your eyes. You don't fall into too deep of the sleep so your head doesn't move too much, right? You jerk your head, that's too much. You don't want it visible that you're falling asleep. They weren't entertained. And are we going to say that God didn't use Jonathan Edwards because Jonathan Edwards was one of the main players in the Great Awakening? And if you want to talk about incidents and in historical occasions that had so much to do with the shaping of our identity in nation, it is the Great Awakening, God uses God-focused sermons, not entertainment. So what does God say about worship? That the preaching should point to him as salvation and in life. Always point to him. We also see that there's an element of fellowship. Part of our worship, part of what glorifies God is when we are with people who are like-minded and pointing us to Christ. That doesn't mean we become Amish and we don't have fellowship with non-Christians, but those relationships that are deepest and that we turn to most are those that glorify God in faith and life. We want to love and lean on those who encourage us to worship. That in those people and in those relationships we see the goodness of God and providing that person for us. Now our relationship with them isn't about the social standing that they can give to us. It's not about what we can take from them It's about that they love Jesus and they love you. And they love you enough to point you to Jesus. Those relationships aren't there just for your entertainment. They're there to glorify God. And so we have to think, do we have those sort of relationships in our lives? Do you have those people you can go to and say, will you please pray for me? And you know they will. That you would happily join in worship with who are faithful to point you to God in all ways. And Luke says here, that's the church. That's part of the worship of the church. And it goes back to our very created meaning, that we are created in the image of the triumph God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are in perfect fellowship with each other. And so we know in us being created in the image of God, we have been created to have fellowship with God, but we have also been created to have fellowship with each other. And we have God-glorifying relationships. It is worship. And so we're called to cultivate those relationships that glorify him. And finally, and quickly, we see that worship of the early church consists of the sacraments, particularly the Lord's Supper and of prayer. And the thing about what each of these are meant to do, what they do, the Lord's Supper points us to God and what he did for us. When we come to the table, we are reminded that we are totally helpless in our own salvation. We can do nothing to save us from hell and damnation. We are entirely dependent upon God. And that's what the Lord's table reminds us of. And the same goes with the sacrament of baptism, that we are set apart in God because we need him as our savior. We need salvation from him. We need him to call us, to choose us, to draw us to him, for him to make us each his own. Each of the sacraments points us away from ourselves and to God the table, the fount it all points us to God it's all a God-centered focus of our worship and the same is true with prayer prayer is all about dependence on God why do we pray to him? because he is sovereign who can and who will act for his people when was the last time we prayed and we said, hold up God I got this hold up don't move, I can take care of this myself. That's the antithesis of prayer, isn't it? Prayer in itself is about dependence on God, looking to God, knowing that you need Him. We go to Him with our joys and our sorrows, with our needs and our desires, with our tears and our smiles. That's what we're taught to pray, our Father in Heaven. That's the prayer, total dependence upon God. And that's why we end by praying in Jesus' name, because we have to go through a mediator in prayer, because we are totally dependent upon God. Prayer in and of itself is all about God. So, what does God say about worship? He's given us the sacraments and the prayer to remind us and to bless us that it is all about Him. It's the very nature of worship, it's all about God. Pastor John MacArthur says, do you want to know if the world has infected your church? Cut out the music, turn on all the lights, use normal light bulbs, have a man not in skinny jeans stand in front of you to preach the word. Now go out and try to sell that. When we come to church on Sunday, are we looking to be entertained? Are we longing to worship? Do we come here looking to Christ, longing to be more in all of who he is and what he has done for us? Do we come here because we know we need spiritual refreshment in the midst of this cultural desert we live in? Are we wanting to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness? This is what God says about our worship. Is that what our desire for worship is? And Let me say this before we end. I should have said this earlier it's okay to have preferences. It's okay if you prefer contemporary worship or traditional worship, rose, no rose, hymns, so on and so forth, as long as it glorifies God. The problem we make is when we make our preference normative, when we say our opinions matter more than what God wants. Our view of worship shouldn't be defined by our preferences. It should be defined by God. I'll close with this. Kind of joked with other pastor friends here lately that with the earthquakes all around us and and weird weather and and sickness all over the place, we should probably be preaching more from Revelation and Jesus coming back. Kind of seems like we're living a little bit of Revelation, doesn't it? But let's say something, let's say, I'm I'm not wishing this, it's just hypothetical. uh, An earthquake or tornado, something happens and we can no longer use this Sanctuary. There's no pews. There's no organ, no piano, no no stained glass windows. Let's let's take all this away. We cannot use the sanctuary to come here on the Lord's Day to worship. Let's say the only place we can meet is down our fellowship hall. But it's missing a wall. We only have three walls. And there's there's holes in the ceiling that run all the way up to, to the roof. And so cold air is coming in, rain's coming in. Would you come worship? Would you come to worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness if your preferences were here? If all this was gone? Our confession reminds us the reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conjugal hearing of the word in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the hearts. As also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary of the ordinary religious worship of God. Why are they the parts? Because they all point us to God. And that's what worship is all about. So may our desire and worship be always point to God and to worship Him as He has called us to. Join me now as we pray.